All right, here we are. Let's go back now to Exodus chapter 22. And we are going into the details now of the law. We heard in the beginning uh, when we went through the Ten Commandments, you had the great big ten thundering ethics given by God from Mount Sinai. And now the law starts to unpack the so what, what does this mean, how does this play out in the everyday life of Joe Israelite, so to speak. And we're getting to the details in particular of theft, of restitution, of justice. Really, justice comprises the themes as we look from verse 1 of chapter 22 all the way to verse 9 of chapter 23. It's all about real justice. And the focus here is particular and we, as we look, because we're only going to get to verse 20 uh, this morning, which we already read. The, the focus is namely about financial restitution, financial justice. And so we'll get into some of those details. But that calls to mind, I want to give you a question as we think about justice, restitution, cost, and this kind of thing. But my question is this. I know it's not near the 4th of July, so maybe you don't remember. Um, but how much does a single little smoke bomb cost? You know the smoke bombs, these multicolored little like cartoon bombs, and you, and you light them, and they spit out these colors of smoke and so forth. It's a very simple firework. I think for a bag, you can buy you know, many of them for just a few dollars probably. That is, they're not very expensive. And of course, how much, however you want to answer that, how much does a single smoke bomb cost? Well, it's going to depend where you buy it. But not only does it depend where you buy it, but it depends also what you do with it. Because for one young man in Oregon, his little smoke bomb cost him $36 million. This young man lit a firework and he tossed it into Oregon's Columbia River Gorge. Now, being at once 15, uh, I might have thought that's a great idea too. He got like this, this, this crack in the rocks and you're going to throw these smoke bombs in it and see all these colorful uh, smoke arise out of it. It seemed like something from a movie. Except this little smoke bomb got, as you can maybe already guess, set ablaze a raging forest fire that burned nearly 47,000 acres of forest. Think Washington, D.C., burnt to a crisp. And he was tried in court, and the judge ordered restitution, restitution to be paid in $36 million dollars. So now this young man is now also a very poor man, as he's going to pay back for all the resources that were used to fight this, this forest fire that took months to put out. That amounted to $21 million to the U.S. Forest Service, $12.5 million to the Oregon Department of Transportation, another $1.6 million due to the Oregon State Fire Marshal, and another million to the Union Pacific Railroad, including a check for a mere $5,000 to a man's rental home that was destroyed. Now, the attorney representing the young man said that this ruling was cruel and unusual. He went on to say, it's absurd. It's absolutely silly. Now, why would he say that? Because we all know there's no way this kid's going to be able to pay this back. Over his whole lifetime, he probably won't be able to pay it back, let alone if he had many lifetimes, could he ever pay back the $36 million dollars? But there's a justice in it. In a way, it was really the right ruling. Because we know this principle. We tell it to our kids as we go to uh, any kind of shop, especially if it looks like it has expensive things. Kid, listen, you break it, you buy it. Meaning, don't touch, right? 
Well, the only problem for this kid is he broke a forest, and now he's going to have to buy it, so to speak. And some might say, that's not fair, because he can never pay it back. But it is fair. Why? Because somebody has to pay that $36 million. And who's it going to be? Well, probably the taxpayers in Oregon. But it is fair, and God gets it. And that kind of fairness is even enshrined in these notions of God's law, of how He exhorts and sets up His people here as they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. He enshrines in His law and how we interact as a society, He enshrines these notions of personal property, responsibility, and justice, putting them, baking them right into the law code of His people. And over the next two weeks, we're going to parse out the details of justice here, what it looks like in a society to to live in justice. And it's going to cover a range of avenues and applications, but our focus, namely today, primarily, is about restitution, mainly financial just payback. That's where our text is going to take us. Really, for the next two weeks, we're seeing that a just God, a God who is righteous, a God who is just, He demands that His people do justly. We need to image out to this world what our God is like, and that means if He's just, we should be. And so that means we need to give the good that people are due. Whatever anyone, the good that they are due, we owe that to them. That's what it means to do justly. And we're going to see that in two facets, and admittedly, they're not balanced. We're going to be looking first at verses 1 to 17, and we're going to be talking all about, namely, financial restitution. And then we're going to turn, as the text does, to consider God and how our, what do we owe God in this? But we're going to spend a lot of time looking at, in verses 1 to 17, this. You need to give back what is due. If people are owed good from you, you owe it to them, you need to give it. Just recompense just restitution. We're going to see this as we consider this, just give back what people are due. And it's most evident when theft has happened, when you or someone has taken something from someone else. Now, it's not a surprise to hear some of these commands. We heard in the tend, thou shall not steal, right? So we knew we weren't supposed to do that, and God was really serious about that. But now the question is, well, so what? What happens in a society with theft has taken place? What are we supposed to do about it then? Well, that's where we get here. This is the so what. What is to happen then? And we're going to see it's all about restitution. Verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, so notice this case, the thing has been stolen and it can't be returned. It can't be given back. It's gone. What's to happen then? He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, two things I want to highlight here. First, you see that all these laws about restitution, all these laws about payback, they're all predicated upon one underlying truth. We know it in our own society, the right to possession. You have the right to your own personal property. You have the right to your own stuff. It's yours. People can't take it from you. The things you produce, they belong to you. And that's what makes sense of all these laws that follow out of here, such that if your own stuff that you have made or you possess or you've worked for, it's yours. People can't take it from you. And if they do, then that's sin. That's theft. That's wrong. And God doesn't like it, right? That's what's captured by these laws. 
So that's the first thing. You understand what underpins all of these laws or undergirds all these laws is this right to possession. But second, you see with crime, there's a price to pay, especially theft. Because people own stuff and you've ruined that stuff, you have to pay the price for it. And at times, it can be a pretty steep price. So in the first place, look at verse 2. So again, you steal the critter, and then you've disposed of the evidence. You killed it or sold it or hawked it or whatever so that you could never return it. What's the consequence? He shall repay five oxen for an ox or four sheep for a sheep there in verse 1. I mean, that's a steep price. Five to one, four to one. But then look down to verse 4. If you could return the stolen beast, you only have to pay double. That is, you didn't get rid of it ahead of time. So now only you have to pay back the animal and another one. And this seems to be like the solid principle that goes through all of these laws is that if there's been some kind of loss, some kind of theft, the underlying proposition is you pay double. You return the thing that was taken from them, and then it's 100% on top of that. And that starts to sound, as we think through the laws we've been talking about, much more like the justice that we've heard, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And that's not a word of vengeance, right? We talked about this. But that is a word on just compensation. The punishment fits the crime. Now, but if you try and get rid of the evidence, you steal it and destroy whatever that thing is, you see this, the price to pay is really steep. Again, like five to one. And this is part of the deterrent that God's putting into His laws so people wouldn't steal. I mean, again, you're thinking about stealing that $10,000 Nissan car. Well, if you get caught and got rid of the car, it's going to cost you fifty grand. That's going to give me more pause. But the underlying principle is you have a right to your stuff. People can't just take it from you. It belongs to you. Hence, we had skipped over this, but now to look to verse 2 and 3. We find that you have such a right to your stuff, you even have a right to protect your stuff and your family and whatever else. Verse 2, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. You're not guilty for murder. So if a thief's breaking into your house, and namely it's at night, you have a right to defend your family. You have a right to defend your stuff even. But we keep reading on to verse 3, but if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guilt for him. So here's the qualifier. And this makes God's laws actually so much different than the other laws of the time. You've maybe heard of like the Code of Hammurabi, for example, of the ancient Near East. But the, what makes it different here is there are actually protections for the perpetrators. Even the thieves get protection under God's law. Why? Because God values life. We see this underlying principle, God values life more than He values stuff. And how this then plays out, what the scenario is describing from verses 2 and 3, it's like this. If the thief is breaking into your house and it's at night, and you, know, you hear something going on out there in your field, and you, and you come defending your, your stuff, or he's actually inside your house, and it's at night, you don't know what's going on. You know, you're not expected to be like, okay, I hear you down there. Are you just taking my stuff? Or are you going to come murder us? Like, you don't have to do that. It's dark, it's at night. You just go defend your family. And if the guy dies in the process, 
He's on the hook for his own life. He should know better than to come into the house. But if it's daylight, that's the point. If the sun has risen on him, and you can somehow assess that, oh, he's not out to kill us. He just wants to take that sheep. You don't have a right to go kill him. This isn't, well, that's my stuff, and so his life should end. No. No, he should be brought to court, so to speak. And that's what this is picturing. He should be made to pay restitution, not pay with his own life. There's a difference here. And again, we, we see in God's law his very heart. He values life over stuff. Now, if the thief is caught, again, since it's daylight, you didn't kill him, but you were able to stop him, he has to pay double. And if he can't do that, then he gets to be sold as an indentured servant, as we've been talking about, so he can pay the debt that he owes you. But you see, whatever it is, justice requires payback. Justice requires recompense. Now, that's the opening verses 1 to 4, talking about theft, stealing, and so forth. But that's not just the case if someone outright takes your stuff that compensation is demanded. But it holds, too, if somebody's just been careless and so then destroyed your stuff, they're still on the hook. Whatever they've done that's led to property damage, they're on the hook. The way it's framed here, and that's why these laws are grouped together, it's like theft of a different kind when you've taken away the use by your negligence for someone else. And whatever it is, justice demands payback. Restitution, it's called. So, like, for example, to look at verse 5, if you don't take care of your animals or your fields or maybe your fence, and so then your animal breaks and goes to another guy's field and starts eating his crops, you know, it's not just, oh, man, I'm so sorry, Betsy got out again. It's that at least. And then you bring Betsy back, and then you go pay him for the crops that Betsy ate. And you don't get to choose like, oh, those are those really brown bananas. You can have those. No, you take the best that you got because you don't know what your animal ate. And I bet your animal probably picked the best that it could find. So pay him back that. The point is, you're on the hook. Or similarly, it gives this scenario in verse 6. If a fire breaks out in a field. Now, what's the scenario, right? You're going to, after you've harvested your crops, you're going to burn your field down. It, it's this product of creating a good soil for the next planting. But let's say, as the scenario is here, verse 6, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or standing grain on the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make restitution, full restitution. So you had a fire, it got out of hand. Uh, you didn't know how the wind was blowing. And it was an accident, is the point. You didn't mean to do this. You're still on the hook if it ate up all of this grain. And note that statement there, the way it's put at the end of verse 6. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. Full restitution. That, that comes out of the same Hebrew word, root word that comes the word shalom. You've probably heard the word shalom before. It means peace or it can be a greeting. But it does mean peace. And here you are making peace with your restitution. You are restoring things back to a right. You're putting things back together. You're making them like something wrong never happened before. You're making it right. You're putting things back the way they should be. Except, of course, what's happened? Something very bad did happen. And sometimes that can be a very costly happen. But you need to make it right. You need to make full restitution. Justice demands payback. 
Now what unfolds, looking to verses 7 through 15, are three differing scenarios where now your neighbor has your stuff for some reason. You've been Give it to, you've given it to him to watch for you, or he's borrowed something, and then in the end, it doesn't turn out okay. He borrowed it, he broke it, and so now what do you do? Or, or you know, your neighbor in these contexts talks about animals. Your neighbor's kind of like dog sitting for you, right? Yes, but it's more like ox sitting, and the animal gets hurt, dies, injured. Well, what's to be done then? Can you guess? The neighbor is supposed to make it right. That's pretty simple. He's on the hook. He was supposed to watch it, and he didn't. And if that's what happens, you're on the hook for it. You need to make full restitution. So, for example, to look down to verse 12, so you've given this animal to your neighbor, and if it turns out it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So there you go. You were supposed to watch it. You let it get stolen, or you didn't take the right precautions. And so you need, to make, you need to pay it back in full, which probably means double. Now, if the neighbor who's watching it claims, yeah, but it's not my fault. I took reasonable precautions, and yet I couldn't be helped for losing it. Well, if you can prove that it was not your fault, like, for example, we look on to the next verse, in this case with the animal that was being doggy sat, sadly becomes doggy dead. Here's what you do, verse 13. If you can prove that, If it's torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what's been torn. So, for example, if you had a a cage, so to speak, with all of your animals and your neighbors, and, and the ravenous wolf or whatever comes into the pen and happens to just eat your neighbor's uh, animal and not yours, it, it's like that's unlucky. Uh, it's in the sense of you are taking reasonable precautions. Uh, you couldn't be helped uh, in that case, such that you might have even chased down the animal to get the evidence back. So you're not on the hook for that. When you've taken reasonable precautions and it just so happens, your neighbor's thing gets broken. But you can well imagine a scenario where the owner comes back and goes to his neighbor, hey, where's my ox? And you're like, funny thing happened, I don't know. And your neighbor's going to be like, what are you talking about you don't know? And uh, they're both going to be saying, no, that's, that's not my fault. And the owner might even go look at the field of said other neighbor and be like, that looks like my ox. And the other guy's going to say, no, that's always been my ox. It just looks like yours. And so you can imagine in things like this, there's conflict back and forth, one word against another. Well, what are you supposed to do then? And the law here, again, gives principles for these things. How is this resolved when you have basically a he said, she said, so to speak, story? Well, they go before God and they take an oath before Him when there's no other evidence to bring. Verse 11, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and shall not make restitution. So if there's no proof, no evidence, one way or the other, the original owner who is out the animal, he has to just accept the word, the promise, the oath of his neighbor and not demand restitution. This underscores, doesn't it, the importance of trust in a society let alone the people of God in particular, but in a society where we trust one another at our word. You really can't function without it. And we try and 
coerce this out of in our court system when people put their hand on the Bible and they swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, etc. That's kind of what is brought out here. The owner is going to have the neighbor take an oath that, I no, I didn't take advantage of you. He's going to swear to his own hurt before God about what should be done. I mean, we were warned in the Ten Commandments already, do not take up the Lord's name in vain. So that warning stands as they're brought before this scenario. It's as if to ask, God's curse be on my head if I'm lying. And the thought is that would coerce a confession before they would ever uh, come to that if that's what happened. But again, this is what justice demands. When you've wronged your neighbor, intentionally or not, you owe him. You got to pay it back. God's character, God's justice demands this. And we need to keep that in mind as we turn to the last scenario in this section, verses 16 and 17. Let's read it and explain this further. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, that is, she's not engaged, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father father utterly refuses to give him to her, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, before we start making charges against the Bible being barbaric and backwards and all of this stuff, you got to keep the context in mind, namely the context, what have we been seeing throughout of all of this? It's really about economic justice, just payback. That is, this is not yet a commentary on whether it was a good thing that the man did in seducing the woman. Actually, it becomes clear it is not a good thing, and that's why the consequences are codified here. But the issue is, when this has happened, well, what do you do now? Namely, and this is how they would have thought about it in this ancient context, what, what about the financial obligations that were there? Because in this ancient context, in a typical arrangement or betrothal, as we were already talking about, what's happening? You had the groom-to-be, in Israel, this is how it worked, the groom-to-be and the groom's family would then pay a substantial sum to the, the bride's family, namely the father of the bride, and that was called the bride price. Now, we hear bride price, and we're thinking, well, like, what's the price of eggs these days, and what's the price of oranges? But this wasn't so you could own her. That's not the point. She doesn't then become his property. Namely, what does this bride price do or accomplish? In some ways, it's a lot like, and maybe this is what our pricey engagement rings try and figure, right? The simple ring with like a big diamond on it. Yeah, big diamond's really expensive. And what does that show from the groom? Well, he can at least get enough money to buy a ring. So he can support a wife is kind of the, the picture or idea. And, and that's the point here is this bride price shows that this family and this groom-to-be, they have the money, they have the, the fortitude and the ability to care not just for him, but for the, the bride for her whole life. Furthermore, not only shows his intentions, but this sum that then the, the bride's father would receive, he wouldn't, uh, you know, go buy some, you know, new sports car, so to speak, or three more oxen. The idea was is that he would invest this money in some way that he'd be setting it aside in case in any way he has to go care for his daughter again. 
you know, she becomes a young widow, and she, and, and she comes back into his house, or, or maybe something worse morally has happened, and again, she has to come back to his house. He could take, the father could take this bride price to care for her. So, again, if you have the scenario where two young people are trying to get around that whole system, and the bride price isn't being paid, there's this huge financial obligation and gap that's been left. And it could leave this girl later on destitute if it's not paid and if things don't work out. You know, I trust, as we've had a number of marriages take place in our congregation, referencing the, the pictures we see, seems like every other week during the summertime, right? That I trust the parents, families also are talking about, you know, when are these young people ready? When are they actually able to care for one another financially and otherwise for the rest of their life? And that's kind of what's being pictured with this whole bride price thing. Can they really be financially independent? But again, the scenario is in their lustful love, so-called, this young couple sleep together without paying the bride price, trying to treat one another as if they're married when they're clearly not. And again, that's the scenario. This doesn't seem to be here like force. This isn't rape. This is consensual. But it seems like, oh man, I got the girl and I didn't pay the bride price. No, the law is saying you got to go back and pay the bride price and marry her. And even if the father says, no, I don't want my girl to be with him for the rest of her life, you got to pay the bride price anyway. So you're going to pay. You wanted to treat her like a wife, then you're going to pay that price. And, of course, you understand this would be a great deterrent against premarital sex in that society. You know, our society is trying to deconstruct all barriers uh, to premarital sex, devaluing marriage, devaluing commitment like that, uh, especially through abortion. But, but that's not what's happening here. It's being prized and valued and protected such that the violator is going to have to pay the bride price regardless. And that's what's just, you see. That's the right restitution for the violation he's done because the father and the daughter still get the financial security and it won't be taken from them by some seductive man for a few moments of pleasure. All right. So we've seen all these laws. We've been in the nitty-gritty here. There's some big principles that come out of this, right, that we've seen. What are they? One, everyone has a right to possess their own things. They have a right to their stuff, the right to possession and property. Second, if that right is violated, justice demands things get made right. Restitution's made. Payback happens. you got to make it straight. Make it whole. And third, related to all of this then, is we see that thieving, stealing, crime, sin, doesn't pay. Actually makes you pay out. You never actually get what you want. You're always paying out more, doesn't it? It's really this poetic justice of the whole thing. Like we heard with eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's the great irony. The thief ends up losing exactly what he hoped to gain. And then some, right? Because leave thieving out of it for a second, but just think about paying back your neighbor and so forth. Have you ever been in this scenario? You go and borrow your neighbor's power tool, maybe a church member's power tool, and you're going to do it for some project because you couldn't possibly justify buying this power tool because you think you only use it once, and yet you keep borrowing it from your neighbor. Another story. 
But then as you're using it this time, guess what? It breaks. So then what do you got to go do? Well, I got to go buy a replacement. And that's going to cost 350 bucks. And what happens in the end? My neighbor gets the brand new power tool that I bought him. And what do I have? Nothing except minus 350 bucks. You know, that's the great irony of it. So maybe wives, husbands, buy more power tools. <laughs> but it's a great irony. There's justice in the payback. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Uh, we see these principles. How do these get lived out in our life? Well, first, when you might go and pursue just recompense, when you're trying to get full restitution, that's not necessarily greedy. That's not wrong. It's what justice demands. It's right. You had something that was rightfully your thing. It got lost or taken from you, assuming you're not at fault, by the way. It's right for you to want somebody to make it financially right. But here's the thing. In the end, though, right, practically, if you're the one wronged, there's only so much you can do to force them to make it right. Even in our own justice system, I was having to research restitution in Virginia. How does this work? Best I can tell, it's like this. Let's say you had your car stolen and wrecked, and say it was a really nice car, you know, like a Corvette. So we're really imagining big now. And your Corvette gets wrecked, and if the thief is ever caught and convicted, the judge might say, yeah, he's going to do jail time, but then he also has to provide restitution for the wrecked Corvette. And you're like, great, I'm going to get my money back. Well, hold on. He doesn't have to pay until he gets out of jail for paying his crime by his time, and then he has to go and pay you. And if he doesn't have any money, he won't likely be able to pay it back anyways. So you'll probably never see the money for your Corvette. And the thing is, that's not right. It's not just. It's not. We're trying, you might say, in our justice system, but that's not the right way it should work. But here's the thing. Even in that example, when you're the one wronged, there's only so much you can do, even through the course of law, to make things right, to make them make it right back to you. And here's also the thing, to turn it inward to us a little bit. When it comes to justice and payback and so forth, that's the part I'm really always concerned about. That everybody pays back what I should get. I've been wronged. I should be repaid. And that's where all of our focus goes. And the thing is, we can't even control that. But you know what you can control? You can't control them trying to pay you back. But what can you control? You can control you. Meaning here, make it right. Take responsibility. Not who has wronged me and how should they repay me? It's who have I wronged and what should I be paying back to them? Take responsibility. I love it how Phil Riken just rattled off a few instances of how this can look, or better said, the kind of mentality we need to adopt to take responsibility, make it right. If your dog digs up your neighbor's prized begonias, you need to replace them. If you're visiting a friend and knock over an antique vase, you need to pay for it. If you swing late on a fastball and the ball sails through a car window, okay, total accident, you need to pay the repair bill. If you borrow a friend's computer game and accidentally break it, you need to buy a new one. These are only examples, he notes, but it is our responsibility to repair whatever damage we do, whether we meant to do it or not. He's right. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for your actions. But Rick, yes, I get that. But what if the thing I did, say, by accident was really, really costly? 
Like $36 million costly? (laughs) Well, know this. Sorry, that was an accident. That doesn't make it right. It doesn't. It's a good start. Sure. (laughs) Be humble. Be repentant. But that doesn't make it right to just say you're sorry. What makes it right? Restitution. Full repayment. And that's what actually brings peace. I know this personally and in a sad story. Uh, I recall my friend, she let me drive her beautiful-looking, newly painted, classic VW Beetle. This was in high school. It was a manual, so I was all juiced on getting in this thing and driving it around. Uh, what I wasn't accustomed to is how, like, you sit in that VW Beetle, you close the door, but your tire is actually farther left out from you. The point is, when you back out, yes, I might pass the pole, but that front fender won't. So as I back out, all excited, she's sitting on the curb watching. She's like, oh, good, he's trying it out. I'm backing up, I hear this, as that front part of the wheel just scrapes that whole pillar. Oh, dear. And I wasn't sure how bad it was. You know, you're in the car. It's like any kind of sound sounds horrible. You're like, ah, it's probably nothing. I drove around for a couple minutes and then pulled out, and then I looked at the car. Oh, it was something. Yeah, it was no nothing, and I felt horrible. Uh, And so I had no money. Uh, I had $20 in my wallet. I'm like, here, take this. I feel terrible. She's like, don't worry about it. It was an accident, yada, yada, yada. And yet, even though she was saying that, I mean, my 20 bucks wouldn't cover a tenth of what the actual thing was. I mean, I wronged her, and I never made it right. And this, I I know this is true because only later, that VW Beetle got wrecked and totaled. And by the way, nobody was hurt, thankfully, okay, except for the car. And that was when I finally had peace about it, it, because I couldn't do anything about it anymore. Listen, I am serious. It's horrible. But like once the situation was gone out of existence, then I'm like, finally, I'm off the hook. But I wasn't really. And I think you get where this is going. But you know what could have made it off the hook? Restitution. Right from the beginning. Which would have meant for me groveling and admitting to my dad what an idiot I was. Terrible driver too, probably. And then I'm going to be either then... To my dad or to this family, an indentured servant for who knows how long to pay back the whole price of that car. The point is, real restitution, it's good. Because what does it do? It makes peace. It makes things right the way they should be. It sets things straight. And so we as Christians, we should not owe anyone anything. We must be quick to pay our debts, take responsibility, make amends, make sure you're treating others justly and to the full. Why? Because your God is concerned about justice. Ah, remember, this is God's law. This is His Word. This shows us the thing God is concerned about. And so now that God has come back in particular to the equation, we have to then turn and ask, well, what does this teach us about our God and how we should relate to Him? I trust you see where this is going. If this is how we should act towards one another when we've done injustices, what does this mean for us and our relationship with God and the God of justice? Well, in short, as we turn, that's what we see in verses 18 to 20, and it's this. You need to give God what is His due. 
verses 18 to 20, give God what is His due. That's what justice demands. Because the law turns next to living in light of God of all of this. Again, if others have rights that demand something from us, should not our God. And, and that's what binds together these, I think, otherwise looking kind of random laws in verses 18 to 20. But they're all about what does God do, namely our worship. He is due our praise. He is due our dedication. All that we are belongs to Him. And so that comes out in this first prohibition, and it's a doozy here, uh, verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Okay, so we've been talking about, you know, bride prices and oxen, and now we're talking about sorceresses. It's like we just dropped into uh, Lord of the Rings or uh, Harry Potter all of a sudden. But what is this about? What is this whole notion of sorcery? Well, a sorceress was, I mean, really a, a female witch or just a witch, a magician, a medium, a necromancer. This is somebody who's speaking to the dead, trying to tell the future or manipulate your future. And so what did you do? You paid her a sacrifice. You gave her some kind of payment. In other words, this is worship. You're trying to manipulate God or manipulate the gods or the stars or whatever else. And it's showing a lack of trust in God, a lack of trust in His Word and in His future, because that's why you're searching for other answers. It's really about false worship, a lack of faith, and a sorceress sowing seeds of false worship will not be tolerated in the worship community, tolerated to lead God's people astray from Him. And so she is to be put to death. Now, of course, in the Old Covenant, how did this work? The nation of Israel was church and state together, so they had the sword. So they executed her. That is not what the church is called to do, right? We don't, ex we don't execute, we excommunicate. We remove them from the membership of the church because they've contradicted it with their life. Anyway, here's the next prohibition, verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Bestiality. This perversion, just on its face, demands one to be put to death under the Old Covenant. And why is that? Well, in Leviticus 20, which, which lists a number of the sexual deviancies listed there, bestiality, you understand, along with those, runs afoul of God's created order. That You've left that order and gone to animals. And that's the same kind of logic that Paul references in Romans chapter 1 when he speaks about homosexuality. You've left the order that God has made, and you're going somewhere else with it, and it shows your rebellion against the very God who made you. But back to our text in verse 19, uh, why is bestiality, among many other sexual sins, why is that the one highlighted here? But that this was a part of the worship practices, it appears, of the other Canaanite cultures that Israel was about to go interact with, that they would depict these things and then advocate these things. This was part of their whole fertility cult. You know, you, you have these actions with an animal, it's going to make your, your ground fertile and so forth. You're going to have crops and all of this. And anyway, it shows again a trust in somewhere else than God, and for that, Israel must stay away from it. Now, third, the third command here. 
I trust you see how it most directly speaks to our worship. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Put under the ban, banned out from God's world even. Uh, under the destruction, under the destruction of God, as like an offering to Him. You you see, as I mentioned, whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord, polytheism, the worship of many gods, is put out. You can have one god, and it's Yahweh, and any other god you cannot pair with Him. This again is why marriage gets lofted as this ultimate example of God's relationship to His people. He doesn't tolerate competitors. You have one man, one woman, one relationship. That's it. No others with it. Because that's what God is like with His people. And that's the kind of faithfulness He demands. He will be exclusively faithful to us, and He's calling His people, be exclusively faithful to me. He will not share His worship. He will not share His due. He will not share His thanks. He will not share His glory with anyone else. He's due all the credit, all the glory, all the praise. And anyone else that wants to divide it and share it with someone else, you will be destroyed, walled off from life itself. So in that way, I see that as the Creator alone, let alone our very Redeemer and Savior, what is God owed? What is the due back to Him? Everything. Our everything. It's all rightfully His. Our devotion to Him cannot be divided, can't be split. You can't have multiple masters. You can't have multiple gods. You know, this is why God can command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And if you do that, you won't have love to give to anyone else, so to speak. And He's right to demand it. All our worship belongs to Him. But again... We then stop and we have to look at ourselves and our own heart and the things we worship. What do I prize? What do I love? Where is my worship? Or is my heart divided? Is my devotion divided? And in light of what we've been studying this morning, right? What would be the fruit of an undivided faith in a Christ like this, in a just God like this? Would it not show in a generous, zealous pursuit for the right for others, that how we've wronged them? Would it not be in a generous pursuit to do others right, to do them well, even when it's going to cost us something? Or are we catching ourselves bowing down to our money bowing down to our savings, bowing down to our positions, or whatever other securities we think money can give us. Because indeed, it was that, you know this story, that wee little man who one day, to his surprise and shock, got to meet generous Jesus up close, and that changed everything about him. You remember the story... It's in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19, and Jesus is on the cusp of on his way to go to Jerusalem, and he's getting ready to go die, to lay down his life, and as he's going from town to town, there's this, you know, rallying around him. Every town, they're all circling around, praising Jesus' name, the Messiah is here, and so forth, 
And of course, this is a problem for Zacchaeus. He wants to go see Jesus. He's really curious and maybe a little bit more. I think he knows his need. And he's going to go find Jesus, but of course, he's too short, so he has to go climb that sycamore tree, right? And he says, in that tree, he's looking down, trying to see Jesus. And here's the shocking thing that happens. The whole train is coming. Jesus is in the middle of it. And then he stops and he looks at Zacchaeus right in the tree and says this. This is Luke 19, verse 5. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. I tell you, I bet Zacchaeus was surprised and everyone else was shocked. Why? Because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And what does that mean? He was, to the Jews, a backstabbing, pocket-robbing, Rome-advancing tax collector. He was living high on the hog, taking advantage of all of his fellow Jews out of all of their rightful money. He was despised by his people, because all tax collectors were, especially by the religious faithful, because why? They were helping Rome just put the thumb down harder on the Jews. And so the last person they would ever think that the righteous, just Messiah would come and stop and invite into his life would be Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I want to see you. And it wasn't to destroy him. Why did Jesus call him like this? Well, the end of the story tells us. Because it was just for that kind of person Jesus came for. Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus tells us, came to seek and save who? The lost. The debtors. And what was happening in that moment as he stopped and he looked at Zacchaeus and called him? What was happening was grace was happening. Forgiveness was happening. The eradication of Zacchaeus' greatest debt that no money, he knew it, no money could ever pay. His sin debt, the debt of his soul, a debt that many would have guessed, I'm sure him, that it was just beyond repayment. There was no way to settle this debt. And yet, Jesus comes and calls that sinner right back to him. And hear what Zacchaeus teaches us. When you get grace like that, when you get such a gracious offer of salvation and invitation, it can't stay the same. Such that, here's what happened to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And you know, Jesus didn't interrupt him and say, Oh, you misheard me. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is. And no doubt Jesus would affirm that. But he doesn't rebuke him for going to try and make it right with other people either. Rather, what happens is he says, this is the fruit of his salvation. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. I know you've received my grace because you want to help other people now. And even he sees who he really is. We hear it at the end there. He said, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Why do you think he says fourfold? Think where we began. He saw himself, verse 1 of chapter 22, he saw himself as a thief. A thief who's been fully now forgiven. And so now he's ready to honor the Lord and pay it back. 
Salvation has come to that house and comes to any sinner, any thief, any idolater. This offer of mercy is open and it's free forgiveness, but only because of the cross. And when you've been shown that kind of grace, when you've been shown that kind of abundant mercy, when you've been forgiven something you can never pay back, you cannot but be changed. You cannot but want to make things right with others. You cannot but want to put yourself and all you are before the Redeemer's feet and say, use me, use my monies, use my time, use my life, because they're not mine to hold, they're yours, because you bought me. And so we're confronted with this law, aren't we? This principle of just payback. And we're confronted by this truth, we owe God. We've taken from Him. But then we're comforted by this gospel fact that the debt is satisfied. It is paid. And so in one sense, we are freely forgiven. Now, what do I mean by one sense? I mean this. We are freely forgiven and that it's abundant grace to us. It's abundant mercy to us. It comes freely to us. But what else? It's not free. It costs the Son of God, His life. Someone had to pay for that debt. God demands just payback. But the gospel says it's been paid so that we can be generous out back. And let's do that as His people. Justice and the cross demand it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You don't change that you are the same trustworthy God. And even as we rehearse in this law that justice is demanded, just payback is needed, we know it's been satisfied by the work of Christ on the cross for our very soul. So for that, we praise you. May we walk in that assurance that we are settled with you. Accounts have been settled. The sins are put away if we trust in you. But may we show that trust then by letting go of the things of this world, by being ready to, to make things right financially, if that's what's needed, or pay back, or to, or to reach out to others, whatever it is, may we be people of justice because we've people that have been shown mercy. They might see that there's a place for mercy for them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.